He who was before there was light Walked across the pages of time He who made every living thing Behold Him He who heard humanity's cry Left His throne to wake as a child He became like the least of us Behold Him Jesus, Son of God, Messiah The Lamb, the Roaring Lion Oh, be still and behold Him He who died with sinners and saints Healed the blind, the lost, and the lame even now he is in our midst. Behold him. He who chose a criminal's end, paid with blood to settle our debt, buried life as he rose to life. Behold him, Jesus, Son of God, Messiah. The Lamb, the Roaring Lion Oh, be still and behold Him Jesus, Alpha and Omega Our God, the Risen Savior Oh, be still and behold Him
Praise God. <clears throat> it's good to see this many faces on 4th of July. I wasn't sure how many people we'd have here this morning. We even have our good friends Paul and Nadine all the way from Pennsylvania who came down. <laughs> trying to recruit extra attendance just in case no one else showed up. So, yeah, it's really great to see them again and to see all of you. Praise the Lord. Pastor Daniel is in the great state of New Jersey from which he came. And he is uh, away with his family, visiting with friends and families, not really on vacation per se, just away for a few days. And in fact, he's preaching this morning in his old church. So uh, I guess they heard he was coming and couldn't pass up that opportunity. So he's there this morning. So uh, I've got the privilege of sharing the word this morning. So we're going to begin by... Uh, reading a passage, a verse of Scripture. We'll be referring to several verses of Scripture today, but to begin with, uh, I just want to read one verse from Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13. This is the Apostle Paul <clears throat> writing to the Galatian church. For you are called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Let's pray for a moment. Father, we come to you this morning and thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be together in your house to worship you and to fellowship with one another and to receive your word. So I ask God that you would speak and speak to our hearts clearly, Lord. Uh, that which you have put on my own heart this morning. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It was an unusually cool summer day on the 4th of July in Philadelphia in 1776. The temperature was recorded by one Thomas Jefferson at 72 degrees. In the Pennsylvania State House, Jefferson along with 55 other men were gathered to approve a document that had been written and revised after weeks of discussion and debate. A document that would serve to give birth to a nation and in fact, change the world. Of course, I'm speaking about the Declaration of Independence. With the Declaration, the 13 original American colonies declared their freedom from the oppression of King George III and severed ties with the British Empire. The documents said that the colonies were, and I quote, free and independent states, and that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. The founders listed no less than 27 grievances against King George and the British government. Years of the king ignoring their previously expressed grievances led to that day. July 4th, 1776, and of course what followed was the War for Independence, the Revolutionary War, a full-scale war that was waged successfully 
against all odds, against the greatest military power in the world, and culminating ultimately in the establishment of the United States. So today, we celebrate the 245th anniversary of our nation's birth. Just a few interesting facts that you may or may not know about the Declaration. Even though it was approved on the 4th of July, it was not actually signed until the 2nd of August. And the 56 men who were gathered on the 4th of July were not all there when it was signed. Fifty were. And the other signatures were added later. And interestingly enough, our own Thomas McKean was the last signer of the Declaration some seven months after it was written. Now, this isn't a sermon about the Declaration of Independence, although I could go on because it's such an interesting study. But I'll refer to it often to illustrate the message because what I'm speaking about today is freedom. Freedom is what we celebrate today on this Fourth of July as a nation. The Declaration preamble says we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, this isn't Scripture, of course, but freedom from tyranny and oppression is something that we see as a theme in Scripture. Of course, the thing that comes to mind first of all, in most of our minds, is the plight of God's chosen people, Israel. The Israelites were enslaved to Egypt for 400-plus years, and according to his promise and in his time, God set them free from captivity in Egypt and established them ultimately in their promised land. But that physical deliverance was also also a shadow of things to come. It was a shadow of the freedom that would come by the hand of God through the Messiah, Jesus. There are dozens of scriptures that we could look at that refer to freedom, and I urge you to search them out yourself. Today, we'll just look at a few. The one that I read earlier, Galatians 5.13, speaks of the nature of the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ and how that freedom stands in contrast to much of what the world believes freedom is and even some religious leaders. So let's look at a couple of dictionary definitions of freedom. First of all, one definition is that it's the condition or right of being able or allowed to do, say, think, etc., whatever you want to, without being controlled or limited. The second definition that I want to share is this, liberation from slavery or restraint or from the power of another, namely independence, what we've been speaking about already. And there are other aspects of freedom, but these definitions are sort of the predominant ones which I want to look at today. Let's look at the second one first. The condition or right of being able or allowed to do, say, think, etc., whatever you want to without being controlled or limited. 
I'm sorry, that was the first one. <laughs> Second one is liberation from slavery or restraint from the power of another. Excuse me. So there are, uh, let's look at the second one, and, and, and this really defines the American Revolution. It defines the yearning and deliverance of the people of Israel. And really, it's the cry of the heart of all peoples everywhere that have suffered under oppression, is it not? To be free, to be liberated from that slavery. The inscription of the Liberty Bell is taken from Leviticus chapter 25, verse 10. It says, proclaim liberty throughout the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. And this was a reference to the instruction that God had given the Israelite people after he settled them in their own land to return property and free slaves in the year of Jubilee, which occurred every 50 years. So after they as a people were set free from slavery and in Egypt, God commanded them to do what was right toward one another, and not just toward each other, but toward the sojourners and toward the foreigners who would join themselves to Israel. And he said that they should do that so that they could dwell securely in the land he was giving them. He set them free and called them to serve one another, just as our scripture from Galatians reads. The liberation of this kind is what was sought by the colonists in America, but how did their desire to free themselves align with Scripture? Christianity and the Bible dominated the day in the 18th century here in America. Some colonists did remain faithful or loyal to the crown, while others advocated for liberty. There's a passage of Scripture that was kind of hotly debated in the pulpits of America among the clergy in that day and in the years preceding the revolution. And it's Paul's writings in Romans chapter 13, 1 to 7. I'm going to read that. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So Paul says we're to submit to the government or civil authorities over us because they're God's servants for your good. But in the years leading up to the revolution, many church leaders were advocating for colonial liberties from King George. One of those was a man named Jonathan Mayhew, who more than 20 years before the declaration was a, uh, wrote an essay that strongly influenced the move toward independence. 
He said, in part, those who resist a reasonable and just authority, which is agreeable to the will of God, do really resist the will of God himself and will therefore be punished by him. But how does this prove that those who resist a lawless, unreasonable power, which is contrary to the will of God, do therein resist the will and ordinance of God? So support for independence was strong in many pulpits throughout the colonies. They believed fervently that God's word did not forbid them in their cry for freedom to rebel against the king and against his authority. The first definition of freedom, which I'll read again, is the condition of being able or allowed to do, say, think, etc., whatever you want without being controlled or limited. To me, this is primarily the world's definition of freedom. It's not altogether wrong, but in essence, it's saying, I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it, and I don't care what you think or how you feel or even if it hurts you. We've all seen that attitude. Maybe it's been true of some of us, hopefully in the past and not today. Probably more often than not, if not all the time, at the center of this definition of freedom is self. It's self. Twice in the book of Judges, in chapter 17, verse 6, and in chapter 21, verse 25, we read about the time of the Judges, and it says this, in those days... Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is kind of the essence of the first definition of freedom. Doing what you want, when you want to do it, doesn't matter who it hurts. There was no moral authority in Israel at that time. They had no king. They had no national leader. Moses and Joshua were gone. There were geographical places where God raised up judges to help Israel as they cried out to him after their rebellion, but there was no moral authority, and people went off the rails. They did what was right in their own eyes. Throughout the last 50 years or so in our own nation, and our culture, we've witnessed a steady decline in morality, in, in, in morals and morality. We live in a moral vacuum. The postmodern era, the post-Judeo-Christian era, has produced a vast number of people for whom freedom is exactly what that definition says. But in reality, it's not just the last generation or so that this has been true of. It's really nothing new. The book of Proverbs, in two different places, says... There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. It seems right, it feels good, but it leads to death. C.S. Lewis wrote that the lost enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded. The lost enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded. So this freedom is not the freedom which God desires for us. 
The freedom God desires for us and which he has secured for us through Jesus is not the freedom that is focused on self-indulgence. It's quite the opposite. Like the nation of Israel, we've been set free from slavery. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8 that the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We were bound to sin under the weight of the law, that is the law of God, which in and of itself, as we know, and as Paul writes in Romans also, is good. It's perfect, but it is unable to save us. Rather, Paul says that it reveals to us that very fact, that we are lost. Our condition is one of being lost. Namely, we're unable to live by the law perfectly and save ourselves. Aside from Christ and his finished work of salvation, we're in slavery to sin, we're in slavery to Satan, we're in slavery to self. On our own, there is no path to freedom, not the freedom that God desires for us. Now, the men who signed the declaration knew that there would be a steep price to pay for putting their signatures on that document. And in the next seven years, as the battles of the revolution ensued, the hardship, the loss of lives and possessions that they had to endure were all part of the price of freedom. There were about 6,800 patriots who died in the revolution, about 17,000 more from disease and more than 12,000 as POWs. The colonies could only win their independence by their own hands and through their own, the shedding of their own blood. But the freedom we obtain in Christ can only be had through his blood, through his perfect, sinless life and sacrifice, through his victory over death on our behalf. We can't free ourselves from spiritual bondage. Only Jesus can do that for us. We cannot be freed from fear and death except through him. We cannot be overcomers unless we are in Christ Jesus. In our Galatians passage, Paul's addressing believers who have fallen into the trap of believing those who told them that it was necessary not just to believe in Jesus, but also to keep the law in order to be saved. In fact, that was why Paul wrote the book, the letter to the Galatians. That the teaching, to, to refute the teaching that Christ and works were necessary to be saved. Those in Galatia were turning to, Paul said, a different gospel, and in his absence they needed correction. They were abandoning the grace of Christ which indicates a move to embrace something other than the gift of Jesus' perfect righteousness as grounds for salvation. And since there is no other gospel than the gospel that Jesus gave to Paul, the new teachers to which the Galatians were turning did not come from Jesus. Neither did they present Christ truly, for they said one must follow Jesus and rely on the works of the law for salvation. Apparently, they were telling new converts that they had to be circumcised, that they had to come under the yoke of the Mosaic law in addition to faith in Christ. And these instructors, 
traditionally called Judaizers because they were trying to put that yoke of slavery to the law on the believers, the Gentile believers. And when we get to the fifth chapter, we read the 13th verse, which I read earlier. Here we get insight into the freedom that Christ gives us. Paul tells the Galatians that you're called to freedom, freedom from legalism that the Judaizers were imposing on them. But then he goes on to say that this freedom should not be used as an opportunity to serve themselves, but rather to serve one another. The freedom that we have in Christ means we're no longer enslaved by the things which once bound us, and we are free to serve others in Jesus. We've come out from under that burden of sin into a new freedom. Theologians teach that there are four states of man in relation to sin. There's the pre-fall state in which we were Adam was able to sin, but also able not to sin. We know what happened. The second state, post-fall, put man in a position of not being able not to sin. The third state in which we are now, if we're regenerated, the state of regenerated man, is that we are able not to sin. And praise God, ultimately, when we are glorified with Jesus, we will no longer be able to sin. But right now, we're in that third state, able not to sin. We have been set free from it. Paul writes it over and over in the Scriptures, in his letters to the Romans, to the Galatians, and elsewhere. Pope John Paul II was quoted as saying, freedom consists not in doing what we like, but having the right to do what we ought. I think that's a good quote. Not in doing what we like, but having the right to do what we ought. Here we're getting at the essence of what freedom in Christ means. The flesh and the kingdom of darkness are tyrants that are as wicked and as powerful and evil as any on earth. The truth of the matter is that until we have our eyes open by revelation through the Holy Spirit, we don't even know we're enslaved. And we have little or no desire, really, to break free because we've been deceived into thinking that we're already free. We can do what we want when we want to do it, and it doesn't matter. But in fact, we're captives, and we don't know it. Then Jesus comes along, and he changes everything. Even before the war for independence came to an end, the leaders of the colonies knew that freedom from the British crown didn't mean that there would no longer be any kind of government. Just what that government would look like was hotly debated before it was established. But no nation can be sustained without laws and government. That's what was happening in the time of the judges in the passage that I read earlier. 
everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. That's anarchy. And a nation can't exist very long under anarchy. Colossians 1.13 says that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption. We've come out from the tyranny of slavery into a new and an awesome kingdom, a kingdom with laws and government ruled over by a benevolent, grace-filled, but just and holy, perfect God. Parameters are necessary in freedom. I read a funny little anecdote about a pilot who came over the PA system in the plane and said, folks, we have reached our cruising altitude now, so I'm going to switch the seatbelt sign off. Feel free to move about as you wish, but play, please stay inside the plane till we land. It's a bit cold outside, and if you walk on the wings, it affects the flight pattern. A funny little story, but illustrates the point. Parameters are necessary in freedom. They're for our own benefit, and they keep us safe. John Adams, our second president, was, of course, one of the principal players among the Founding Fathers, and he was a member of the Continental Congress and a signer of the Declaration. He was an ambassador to London at the time of the Constitutional Convention, so he didn't directly participate in it. But following the adoption of the most, that most important document, Adams said this about it. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. That Constitution has provided parameters for law and government for our nation since. God's Word has provided us with the direction we need as believers, both individually and corporately, to walk in the freedom He has given us in Jesus Christ. I've always found it sort of ironic that when you separate the prefix from the last part of the word independence and make it into two words, it changes the meaning of it 180 degrees. No longer is it, as independence is defined, freedom from the control or influence of others, but rather it becomes independence. It means we're in need of help and aid or assistance. We are in dependence on Jesus. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot abide in him without his sustaining grace. I'd like the worship team to come now, and as they come, we have a table that reminds us of this fact that we're in dependence on Jesus. The Lord's Supper, which we're going to partake of in a moment, it reminds us of his sacrifice, but also at that Passover meal at which he instituted it, 
he humbly took a towel and washed the feet of his disciples. In that, he set an example for us. In his grace, through his blood, he has freed us from sin. He has freed us from pride to walk in humility before him and before our brothers and sisters. Let's close in prayer as I ask Bill Oakley to come and lead us in the Lord's table. Father, we thank you. We thank you, God, for the freedom that you have secured for us in Jesus through his perfect life, his perfect sinless life, and his death and resurrection. We have become free, free to serve you and to serve our brothers and sisters and others. Lord, give us the grace to walk in that freedom and to do what we ought to your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.